Saeed Khan and Howard Lupovich are used to having difficult conversations. In fact, they've made it a part of their jobs. They both teach at Wayne State University. And together, they often hold lectures and discussions drawing in different Muslim and Jewish perspectives on the Middle East. These conversations are always hard, but we've seen the national dialogue reach a boiling point the past two weeks. Rather than avoid, Saeed and Howard are approaching this moment head on. They've already held an open discussion with Wayne State students about the recent violence. Today, the importance of talking across difference and the histories that led us to this moment. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Saeed Khan is a professor in Near East and Asian Studies and director of the Center for the Study of Citizenship at Wayne State University. And Howard Lupovich is a professor of history and director of the Cone Haddow Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State. Saeed, Howard, welcome. Thank you for having us on to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. There's a question that I'd like to ask both of you. Howard, of course, you direct a Center for Judaic Studies and teach history. Can I ask... What is something that you wish more people understood about Gaza or about Palestinian history? Well, I think those are those are two questions. So let me let me take one and then the other. Sure. I wish people today in particular understood about Gaza is that Gaza has not been an occupied territory since 2005. Gaza has been effectively governed by Hamas for the last 18 years. And so for 18 years, Hamas as the government of Gaza, as the regime of Gaza, have had an opportunity to improve the lives of Palestinians in Gaza, an opportunity, I think, which they have squandered in a lot of ways, because a lot of the humanitarian aid that has come into Gaza, they've used to build weapons. And in many ways, they don't have that much of a concern for human rights. To live in, to be Palestinian living in Gaza right now means your human rights are severely limited. I wouldn't want to be a Palestinian who is LGBT living in Gaza. If you're a woman who doesn't want to wear a hijab or meticulously conform to the rules of Sharia law or to the rules of being a Muslim, I think it's a dangerous place. There's no free speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. I think people don't understand that about Gaza. I have to admit, sometimes I'm a little perplexed when human rights organizations, and I can fully understand them aligned with Palestinians, but supporting Hamas is, is difficult. So Gaza is a Hamas-ruled place. Now with Palestinians, what I wish more people understood is that Every argument that one could make for Palestinian statehood and pro-Palestinian rights is also an argument in support of the creation and existence of the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, and vice versa. If you would permit me just a a bit to just add to what Howard said about Gaza. Of course. Uh, Howard, I don't think that Hamas is uh, implementing Sharia uh, in the same way that, for example, the Taliban does in Afghanistan or that ISIS attempted to do in Iraq and Syria. And on the point of occupation, you're absolutely right. Since 2005, it hasn't been occupied, uh, but it has been cut off because it does not have uh, control, of course, of its land borders, its airspace, or even its coastal access to the Mediterranean, which I think, unfortunately, and again, in part because of uh, the way that Hamas operates it, uh, but also because of the arrangement with Israel that becomes problematic. So, Saeed Khan, I want to turn this over to you. You, of course, teach Near East and Asian studies. And I wanted to ask you what you wish more people understood about Israel. I think that both sides need to recognize that the conflict is not of their own doing. 
The seeds for this conflict were really drafted in the oak-lined rooms of London and Paris over a hundred years ago when it came to European strategic interests and priorities in this area. Unfortunately, it is an area that then was uh, used in many ways as a, a board for a game that was being played by others. The idea of, of Israel was actually something that even in 1919, people like Sharif Faisal or Prince Faisal, who then went on to rule Iraq, and Chaim Weizmann, the head of the British Zionist community, they had an agreement in 1919 about how to live peacefully in the area. Unfortunately, the British had other ideas with their mandate. Again, a very complex, in many ways, a very sad history between two people who I'm sure really didn't ask for their role in somebody else's game. There's a question I wanted to ask both of you just about whether things have changed in how Israel and Palestine, whether things have changed about how this relationship and the conflict is taught, how it's addressed in the classroom in the time since you two have, have been involved in the field. I would say absolutely. When I first started teaching, well, the first time I taught a university course on Zionism was 1998 at the height of the Oslo Peace Accords, where there was a real I mean, just a brimming sense of optimism that there was going to be some sort of peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians. And, you know, 25 years later, it's it's much grimmer. A lot of that optimism is gone. There are many different issues, on that things that have changed on both sides. And the prospect of what was seen as a as a, something almost imminent in 1998 is now seen some, something that's completely almost unattainable now. So you have to teach it differently. Right. Saeed, what would you say? I agree with Howard. I think that the Oslo Accords were a watershed moment because of the kind of promise that it offered more than 25 years after the 1967 war and uh, Israel's occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. I would say uh, one of the things that's changed for me, and I've been doing this since about 2004, is having to grapple with social media and the impact that that is really having on students, because we realize that their sources of material, their uh, sources of information have changed dramatically. I mean, Howie and I still come from the generation that used to watch the news religiously, so to speak, uh, at 6.30, whether it was Walter Cronkite or um, David Brinkley, names which are now well in the past. But now uh, we're having students who come to us because their sources are TikTok, maybe some influencer, or the fact that there is, of course, access to so many different media outlets from around the world. We no longer rely simply on network news or even cable channels here in the United States. People are getting firsthand accounts from other outlets, or thanks to social media, they're getting information from the sites themselves, whether it's in Gaza, the West Bank, or in Israel proper. So part of what we then have to do is, in a sense, contend with what they would then considered to be, rightly so, primary source material, and how to then unpack many of those images and provide much needed context to them. Said, how does that change the way students are informed about Israel and Gaza when they show up in a classroom? Well, what we try to do, uh, I think Howie and I, is first of all, provide a very strong foundation when it comes to reading material. There really is no substitute for providing the kind of background, because after all, there is a lot of very nuanced and complex history to these things, to furnish them with that kind of material, 
by scholars, uh, material that has been vetted, peer-reviewed, and in many uh, ways has sort of passed the test of time, that these are sources that have been used and are valid and credible for quite some time. So we provide them with that. And hopefully when they have a good foundation, then as the new images and unfortunately these, these new episodes occur, we're able to then just add on to that so that we don't have to start from scratch every time. We need to take a break. More with Saeed Khan and Howard Lupovich in a minute. As we've just demonstrated, guys, you two do have occasion to differ, <laughs> and more than once, as, as you talk about what's going on in the Middle East. One of the things that you two have addressed in the past is the fact that when we do have this conversation, there must be a sort of code of ethics for disagreement. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Um, Saeed, do you want to go first? Sure. I think uh, the first thing that hopefully we, we demonstrate, because Howard and I have been doing this for some time now, is that there's a mutual admiration, a mutual respect, and, and really a genuine friendship between the two of us. So it's not really just the substance of what we are saying, but also the manner in which we're saying, and hopefully operating from the perspective that people can see that and learn that there is a way that people can go ahead and talk about it. And I think fundamental to that is, even as you uh, noticed, with that departure, if you will, uh, on the perspective of, of Gaza, it's never a yes, but. It was always a yes and. I think it's about going ahead and realizing, again, in many ways to affirm the fact that you have dual and competing narratives about the same situation that's going on, that people can simply go ahead and add a perspective. And it still is correct. It's not something that is necessarily diametrically opposed or creating an incompatibility, because again, there is so much to say about this and there's so much to learn about this. Yeah. Howard Lupovich, anything you'd like to add? The one thing I would add is there's, there's also a mutual trust. You know, Zayden and I trust each other that we have spent time, each of us has spent time meditating on this, reflecting on this complex issue, and we each have something to teach the other. So, for example, just now, even as I opened my mouth and said Sharia, I realized I was stepping into something that I was not that familiar with. And, you know, on some level, I was waiting for and hoping Saeed would make sure I got that straight. So I think there's a natural in a very good way, we have a we have a natural synergy where we can fact check each other in real time. But it's the trust and the, and the fact that we respect each other that we're both historians and we have the same pursuit of the truth. We're really trying to get to the bottom of things, even in a complex issue like this. Right. Said, you mentioned the the greater game that the colonial powers of the UK and France were playing out as the state of Israel was founded. Can you tell a little bit about how the study of colonialism and how the idea of colonialism has changed, how we talk about Middle Eastern history and, and how it's approached in the classroom? Over the last several years, there's spawned a brand new field, really, uh, called decolonial studies. And in this, uh, you find that there is a lot of pushback on what had been generally accepted as uh, colonialism either being uh, neutral, just sort of a historical process, and or looking at it even as a benefit. I mean, you hear some people, particularly when people talk about British colonialism in India, saying, well, 
it was actually a net positive for the people. After all, the British developed and created infrastructure for the people, infrastructure that they can still use, like the railway system. Decolonial studies comes in and says, well, hold on a minute. Um, everything was not so rosy. And oh, yeah, by the way, the British took back the trains with them and just left the tracks. So when we talk about the idea of benefit. Now, of course, at the same time, decolonial studies has become a field that is not purely academic, not purely scholarly. Elements of advocacy and activism have also come into the field and into the discourse. And so that then makes it a little bit more murky as far as how to wade through the weeds. And of course, it then creates an inevitable backlash. Now you find some people who are doubling down on colonialism and saying, yes, it was a, uh, a very beneficial thing. So this is part of academics, that academics then is not something that is just always etched in stone. As Howie rightly said, it is a pursuit of truth. Perhaps uh, what we can then call this is a pursuit of a more complete truth. Howard, do you think that there are ways in which decolonial ideas or just the whole entry of colonialism into the chat in Judaic studies have broadened the understanding of Israel. I mean, obviously, there's some people who feel that a settler colonial frame is really problematic. But what is your take on how it has changed the conversation? Well, I think in general, Jewish studies, in terms of history and politics and whatever, has been aided by post-colonial studies, as all new disciplines do. And I also think that when you have a new discipline, sometimes it reveals its own limitations. And sometimes the excitement or the novelty of post-colonialism leads advocates of post-colonialism, whether they're academics or activists, as Said pointed out, to apply colonial discourse and language where it doesn't really fit very well. So, for example, the notion that Zionism was a colonial movement akin to, let's say, the British colonizing of Kenya or the French colonizing of French West Africa, ignores a very important distinction a distinction in this case, namely that the British had no pre-existing connection to Kenya, the French had no pre-existing connection to French West Africa or Southeast Asia, but Zionism as a form of Jewish nationalism was built on a, a long-standing, centuries-old Jewish connection to the land of Israel, which dates all the way back to antiquity. And in that sense, the language of colonialism, I don't think it fits very well in terms of trying to characterize or categorize Zionism. I can well imagine that young people in the classroom, or maybe students of all ages for the rest of us in real-world grad school, may hear what you two have to offer with the conversational approach you're suggesting and embrace it, but at the same time may also feel like, listen, the bottom line is that people are dying right now in Gaza or people who, you know, people who look like me are getting killed or people who look like me are being held hostage right now. Is the approach that you're suggesting to sort of step back and think of history, are there limits to what it can offer at a time when there's a there's a real life catastrophe playing out? I think what we're talking about is two different parts of the body that are being affected. I think that the images and processing a lot that we're that we're seeing and that we're hearing uh, is really a very visceral one. It is very, very emotional. And what we're doing is appealing to another part of the body, which of course is, is the cerebral. One doesn't necessarily negate the other and one doesn't necessarily solve the problem of the other. We're not in uh, the business of, of, of trying to one up, which is the more important area of the body to address. I certainly focus more on the cerebral as an academic 
And if that helps to then understand the situation better, if that is a way that it informs the emotional, that's all well and good. But it's about, uh, as I guess uh, they say these days, staying in one's lane as to what our resources and what our expertise can hopefully offer. Howard, what do you think? Well, I agree. And I would also add that context nuance, it doesn't diminish from the horrors when events like this happen. So Hamas's attack on innocent Israeli civilians is a moment in history. And in some ways, it can be contextualized in what Hamas has been. And it's possible to contextualize in that way without diminishing you know, the immediacy of the suffering in the moment. I think those two things, not only do they not contradict one another, in some ways they complement one another. Like Saeed said, you do need to approach things in multiple ways. Just keeping in mind, and especially with students, you start from the premise that nothing we're going to study, nothing we're going to say, nothing we're going to learn in any way belies or diminishes the suffering, the suffering of Israelis, the suffering of Palestinians. You know, the death of innocence is the death of innocence. And all the study of history and context doesn't change that. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by our pod editor, Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Moradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.